I am so happy to be here with you all on this cold, beautiful Sunday. As an aspirant for UU Ministry, and in my role as coordinator for congregational activism at UUSC, I get to preach in a lot of different UU congregations. And let me tell you, each congregation does things a little bit differently, which makes sense. I mean, we UUs are kind of known for loving to argue and disagree about practically anything. Uh, there are even UU jokes about it, and I'm going to start our time together with a few of those. So the first one, a Unitarian Universalist died and to his surprise discovered that there was indeed an afterlife. The angel in charge of things told him, because you are an unbeliever and a doubter and a skeptic, you will be sent to hell for all eternity, which in your case consists of a place where no one will ever disagree with you again. <laughs> the second one, Visitors on a tour of heaven noticed a group of Unitarian Universalists who were arguing about whether they were really there or not. <laughs> and the third one, a visitor to a Unitarian Universalist church sat through a sermon with growing incredulity at the heretical ideas being spouted. After the sermon, a UU asked the visitor, so how'd you like it? I can't believe half the things that minister said, sputtered the visitor in outrage. Oh good, then you'll fit right in. So, honestly, I love pretty much all UU jokes, but especially the ones about how much we love to argue and disagree about things. We have eight principles and an infinite number of ways to interpret them. We agree on a lot, but love to get into the nitty-gritty about what we're not so sure of. And I think we can all agree that as a faith, we actually love being unsure. We lean into it, and that's a beautiful thing. We understand that we're a learning and not a learned faith, and that healthy disagreement produces growth and keeps us from being dogmatic about things that we, and in fact no one, can know for sure. However, there's one thing that solidly connects all you use. As I've said, I've been to congregations across the country, and none of them worship the same. But, in every single congregation, there is a chalice, and that chalice is lit to begin worship. Now, you might be thinking, I thought this worship was going to be about how our faith calls us to support our trans beloveds in these times of fascist threats against their humanity. The chalice and UU jokes don't have anything to do with that. Well, first, to come full circle, I disagree. And second, I promise I will explain more, and maybe something that never happens in a UU service will happen today. You all will end up agreeing with me. It is the chalice itself, the very thing that binds all UUs together, that most strongly calls us to the work of resisting the criminalization of our trans and gender expansive beloveds. You see, our chalice, as sacred as it is to us, wasn't always the symbol of the Unitarian and Universalist faiths. In 1940, Reverend Dr. Charles Rhine Joy was sent by the newly created Unitarian Service Committee, the predecessor to the current UUSC, to Lisbon, Portugal, which was the only open port in Europe at the time and was the preferred port for the many refugees that were fleeing the Nazi regime. 
Many of the refugees had to flee without any of the identification papers that were required to cross borders. So Joy decided to start making identification papers issued by the USC itself. This was uncharted waters, but instead of focusing on the risks that he and the organization might be taking by doing this, Joy focused on saving the lives of those fleeing fascism. He also decided that the papers needed a seal to look as official as other travel papers. And so he asked Hans Dutch, an Austrian refugee and artist working in Lisbon, to create one. And the result was the basis of the Flaming Chalice, as we now know it. While this was happening, by the way, Waitzel and Martha Sharp were also sent to Europe by the USC. And they not only falsified documents to get people out, but also laundered money if necessary. So you see, the thing that binds us all as Unitarian Universalists is the chalice, and it was founded on our commitment to human rights and to fighting fascism. Since the founding of the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, we've been committed to supporting the work of liberation, even when, and maybe especially when, it involves making holy trouble for the powers that would deny anyone's full humanity. Okay. Let's take a quick breath together. This is where we get into the heavy stuff, so no more jokes, sorry. I wanna invite you all to do whatever you need to care for yourself and stay grounded as we proceed. If you need to stand up and stretch, walk to the back of the sanctuary, look at your phones, yes, even that, I promise I will not be insulted. Please take care of yourselves. Talking about the present nature of fascism in our country can be incredibly triggering for anyone. To my trans and queer family in the room, this invitation especially goes out to you. So to understand what fascism is, I'm gonna reference the work of Jason Stanley, who's the author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Stanley is a professor of scho and scholar of philosophy and propaganda at Yale. And he describes fascism as an ideology, but also, and perhaps more importantly, as a political method. Not all who use fascist tactics are ideologically fascist. We recognize fascists less by their beliefs than by their methods. And I'm gonna share Stanley's overview of the 10 tactics of political fascism. What I'm sharing with you now is directly, or taken directly from Stanley's work, at times word for word. Um, from a video lecture he gave titled The Ten Tactics of Fascism, which is available on YouTube if anyone wants to check out the whole thing. So Stanley opens by explaining that these ten tactics are bundled together, that they can't be isolated from each other. So the first is a mythic past. Fascists always present the idea that there was once a glorious past in politics, this is presented in the idea that we were once a great nation, notice the past tense, and when we were great, the dominant racial group ruled over others. But now that's been taken away, not lost by our own actions, but taken away by some group designated as other. Jason Stanley says fascists are always telling a story about a glorious past that's been lost and they tap into that nostalgia. So when you fight back against fascism, you've got one hand tied behind your back because the truth is messy and complex and the mythical story is always clear and compelling and entertaining. 
And it's hard to undercut that with facts. The second tactic is propaganda. Now, all social movements and all po politics use propaganda to persuade. Fascist propaganda, however, makes a distinguish, distinction, sorry, we're really practicing the imperfection today, between friends and enemies. It casts the other as a threat and presents the idea that these others are fundamentally opposed to the nation. Tactic three, anti-intellectualism. Authoritarianism presents a cult of the leader. In a fascist system, the leader and only the leader sets the rules about what is true or false. So we see the takeover of the country's media, schools, and cultural institutions to enforce what the leader says is true. That brings us directly to tactic number four, the creation of a form of unreality. The scholar Timothy Snyder talks about this a lot, the destruction of notions of reality. Authoritarians undermine what we know to be true and convince the population that A, everyone is lying, and B, the lies don't matter. In political terms, the center of democracy is truth. You cannot function as a democratic citizen if you're being lied to. The fifth tactic is hierarchy. Hierarchy is absolutely central to fascism. It is the big lie at the center of things. White supremacy, male supremacy, abled supremacy, these lies assign people superiority and the privileges and benefits that go with that superiority. And hierarchy goes right into the sixth tactic of victimhood. Once you've convinced people that they are justifiably higher in the hierarchy, then you can convince them that they are victims of equality. Fascists tell people that equality is victimizing them by making them lose their rightful place of power. Stanley says the goal is to make people feel like victims, to make them feel like they've lost something, and that the thing they've lost has been taken from them by a specific enemy, usually some minority outgroup or some opposing nation. The seventh tactic of fascism is law and order. Under fascism, the definition of law abiding means loyalty to the dominant group. Members of the dominant group, by their very nature, are considered law abiding. Marginalized groups are seen by their very nature as not being law abiding. And law and order has nothing to do with justice or equality. Law and order structures who is legitimate and who is not. And law and order will ultimately be enforced by violence. Tactic number eight is sexual anxiety. In every case across different cultural and historical settings, the fascist leader will always say, your women and children are under threat. You need a strong man to protect your families. Fascists make conservatives overwhelmingly terrified of transgender rights and gay and lesbian and bisexual people and their families. According to fascists, these targeted groups are not simply trying to peacefully live their own lives. They're, destroy, they're trying to destroy the majority's life, and they're coming for the majority's children. Stanley calls the ninth tactic of fascism Sodom and Gomorrah. Fascist movements typically rest on an urban-rural divide, and fascists use a, a toxic trope of the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah. In this trope, 
pure, hardworking, real Americans, or members of the nation, live in rural areas where they work hard with their hands. But when politicians talk about inner city voters or urban voters, we all know what they mean. Black and queer folks, immigrants, Jews, and other people that fascists seek to control and eliminate. The 10th tactic is what Stanley, a child of Holocaust survivors, calls Arbeit mach frei, work shall set you free. These words were hung over the gate at Auschwitz. Fascists create an idea that minorities, immigrants, and others are lazy, that these groups need to be taught a work ethic. The mechanism they use is forced labor, whether it's prison labor or work requirements for benefits, the targeted group must be, provide free labor as a supposed moral education. According to fascist, labor unions are supposedly run by communists who are trying to make things easier for these lazy people. College students who protest conservative speakers are described as lazy, spoiled kids who need to get real jobs. And the thing is, the end game in this calculation is pure evil. Valuing people by how hard they work means that the elderly, disabled, and even children can become disposable. The Nazis murdered these groups first because they believed that those who could not work had no value. Is it any wonder that we are now seeing the repeal of child labor laws in this time of rising fascism? Those are Stanley's 10 tactics of fascism. Very long quote over. So friends, let's take another breath. No doubt you recognize many, if not all, of these tactics at work today in the United States. Currently in the US, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and legislation seems to be one of the few issues that brings disparate factions of conservatives together and right-wing politicians are leaning in hard. 38 states currently have anti-transgender legislation on their books with the number of new bills growing by the day. The ACLU is currently tracking 278 anti-LGBTQI bills that are in process for the 2024 legislative season in various state legislatures. Some of them you would be surprised to know. And most of these are anti-trans laws. There are also 38 national bills being proposed. These bills threaten our trans and gender expansive beloveds in many ways, some of which include transgenocide through legal definitions, which seek to erase trans folks from public life and remove any protections they may have, the expansion of anti-LGBTQI propaganda laws, which apply to libraries, schools, and the internet, and child custody and removal laws that would allow the state or other family members to take children from trans parents or from parents who are honoring their child's gender identity. The lies and misinformation surrounding these bills are abhorrent. These bills are trying to legislate trans and queer people out of existence. And please know that this is not hyperbole. We know that this is the ultimate goal as well because of a 
because of Project 2025, which is the right's published plan to reshape the executive branch if they win the next presidential election. One of their first acts would be to institute a nationwide don't say gay policy through executive order. Because of these laws, trans people in the United States now meet the definition of internally displaced peoples, or IDPs, by the United Nations. Hundreds of thousands of trans people and their families have already fled their homes to safer states, with more than a million considering doing so, according to a recent Data for Progress survey. So let's take another breath. There are so many questions we can ask ourselves in light of the current situation. What do we do? Who do we want to be? How do we resist and even find joy in times like these? And I think many of us look back at times like the Holocaust and have thought, if I was there, I would have done something. Well, folks, we're there. What is the something we are going to do? What is the something you are going to do? Earlier this year, an organization led by trans activists approached UUSC and asked if we could help trans folks relocate to safer states. They saw the work that UUSC is doing with congregations in supporting asylum seekers, and wondered if UUs had the networks, infrastructure, and desire to support a different kind of asylum seeker, ones driven from their US-based homes and communities. In this work with trans activists, we are in an interfaith coalition with Quakers, Jews, Mennonites, the United Church of Christ, and much more. We're exploring partnerships with mutual aid networks and anyone else who is saying, no, I will not let this happen, not on my watch. We are working together to create networks of safety and direct support for trans beloveds and their families who need to relocate, access healthcare across state lines, or stay as safe as possible where they are. Because of the safety concerns for these trans organizers and the people they are serving, we're prioritizing their security above all, which is allowing us to move together in deep trust during these crucial, frightening times. This is why we're not sharing the names of any organizers or passengers or even the trans-led organization that is leading us in this work. Instead, we've come up with the name Pink Haven Coalition to talk about the action we're taking together. And we still avoid sharing this work on social media or on large listservs because these organizations and the Activists involved are already regularly experiencing doxing attempts, which is when people try to get personal information and spread it out, and death threats and other violent threats. And we want to delay our partners becoming a target for as long as possible. And this also creates a challenge in mobilizing UUs and like-minded justice lovers. Our requests for assistance have to be through networks that are trusted and somewhat closed. And that's why I'm bringing this to you here today, my friends. So I'm gonna talk about three important ways you can get involved in this critical work. Get involved as a volunteer. We're looking for people to be part of villages of support. 
We need hosts to offer space in their homes, and we need volunteers to provide support in navigating government programs, accessing healthcare, finding employment, and establishing social connections. This is incredibly important in Illinois, especially because you are a safer state with a decent cost of living. By joining forces, we can provide a safer exodus and a welcoming community for those settling in our area. Make a gift. These efforts to support our trans beloveds require financial resources. Your contributions will help us address the practical needs of those seeking sanctuary, respond to their immediate needs, and set them up for success in their new lives. The First Parish in Malden, Mass, has generally offered to act as fiscal sponsor for this work. And if you can, I encourage you to give as abundantly and courageously as you can by visiting www.pinkhaven.org and clicking Donate. The third way that you can take action is to skill up. We are all in different places on our justice journeys. Some of us here are trans or gender expansive, and this is your lived reality. Others of us may be new to the wonderful world that awaits beyond the gender binary. For those of us who may not fully understand all the terms and complexities of gender and maybe worry about not knowing what to say or saying the wrong thing, I urge you to lean into your discomfort and support these individuals and families anyways. Explore resources that increase your competency in, that, in this arena. Reach out to me if you need some ideas. Pretty much nothing would make me happier. Join me after the service to talk more about this work um, at coffee hour or at the potluck. And keep your eye open for other ways and opportunities for being in solidarity with our trans and gender expansive beloveds as we move through this next year. Friends, the forces of fascism in our nation and in others around the world are only going to grow more brazen in their quest for power. It's up to us to pay attention, disrupt the violence, and remain true to who we are as justice-loving people of faith. As the late John Lewis advised, do not get lost in a sea of despair. Do not become bitter or hostile. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in some good trouble, necessary trouble. We will find a way to make a way out of no way. So I am calling all you holy troublemakers to join us, to rise up and say, we will not fall in line. We will not let this happen. We will make so much holy troublesome noise that we will drown out the sounds of hate and fear and fascism. Together, we can and will find a way out of no way. Now is the time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Amen. Ashe. And let it be so.